This is the one with bats in the belfry. A knickerbocker gloriosa. Fishes and woes. A faulty fault locator. Gauntlet's bestiary of the fourth universe. Napkins folded into the shape of draconian sazu pieces. And a massive energy drain. <laughs> it's called Relative Dimensions. Here, Here we go! Reviewing stuff for Rebels 2. Because we love our Doctor Who. Cultish robots are no bore. Opposing prison, why not sure? The robot haven and like Paul. Or this Phobos pretty cool. Now and then and here and there. We'll follow Doc 8 everywhere. Who back when? Reviewing all of who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes please. Audiobook by audiobook. Even those that are gobbledygook. We'll review them all you see. So join us on this odyssey. It's who back when? Who back when? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another super fan-only audio Who episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Docpast. That's right. This episode is A027 Relative Dimensions. Mm. I'm Drew Back When, and sitting relatively near me in spatio-temporal universal terms is this guy. Leon, that's me. Hello there. Hi, Drew. Hi, Podcast Land. Hi, Leon. Hi again, Podcast Land. Let's get this over with. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> high level, that's what I think. Mm, high level. <laughs> yeah, this was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't go so far as to say awful, but then I'm a relative novice in the realm of audio. Who Are you really saying this is down there? I in the basement really, with the worst of them? Yes, with a whole mess of dead bats. I was not enthralled by this on any level. And I'm, I'm really sorry to say that because I was prepared to enjoy this. I was quite interested in how they were going to tackle a Christmas special in audio format. Yeah, and actually do it properly this time because we did have one previously where oh, wait, Doc yes, and Lucy right. fell out. And there was a drunken Santa, but it was also but wait, that was in a service station. But that was better, surely. Oh, what did we that. give that? In the threes. You might have given it a four. That's that a good episode. A Exactly. This if was it's... a more straightforward Christmas episode, but definitely a worse episode. Oh, yeah. All right. So shall we maybe grab a bite-sized chunk out of this who and then dig deep? Yeah. Let's give the listeners 20 seconds respite from our criticism. <laughs> but then we're back. Then we're back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With renewed vengeance. <laughs> Time for us to synopsize, lobify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brief and listen to this overview. This free for all we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who? The doctors promised Lucy Miller a perfect, cozy, alien-free Christmas to make up for the last one where she left him sitting on Blackpool Beach. But he can't resist showing off his newly reconnected bloodline in the form of Susan and great-grandson Alex. The Doctor's dozy descendant can't quite muster up an interest in intertemporal vagabonding, so when a lot of dead bats turn up in the TARDIS, Doc relishes the opportunity to inspire in him a thirst for adventure. But something fishy is going on, a voice is seemingly echoing back from the future, and is Lucy's Christmas pudding cooked for good? Beescow over. over. You are welcome. You are welcome. <laughs> I'll do just. Okay, so facts. Objective facts. Excellent. Let's do it. Let's get into it. This was written by Mark Platt. Yeah. Who also wrote The Skull of Sobek and the Indeed. last one we reviewed, An Earthly Child. 
Oh, that one as well. I didn't realize. He's yeah, so written he's... a mess of things. A whole mess of stuff. Oh, yeah? Like what? Well, I'll just pluck two random titles, namely the only two that I copy-pasted into my notes. He wrote Ghostlight, which was a seventh Doctor television story. Oh, a television one? Yeah. And oh. he also wrote Downtime, which is that sort of non-canonical unit story, which weirdly came up in conversation in the last Classic Who review that we did, Sharda, because that was produced by Ian Levine, who did oh. one of the Sharda animations. So Mark Platt is about as intertwined in Doctor Who's storied history as you could possibly get. Oh, absolutely. The chap had somehow been involved in Doctor... I, I was kind of expecting... <laughs> no, I don't want to shit on the guy. But I was not expecting a massive whoography. And there were novels there, there were short stories, there were tons of audiobooks... Yeah, holy moly. So a guy with this classic pedigree, it makes sense that Big Finish would entrust him with not only writing explicitly non-canonical, unbound adventures with Susan, but reintegrating her into the ongoing Doctor Who narrative. I guess so, yeah. Because he wrote An Earthly Child, and that was released in the same month as this one, December 2010, and... That was out of sequence, but now this is a proper Eighth Doctor adventure. Susan is back. Yeah, is it, though? Yeah, it is. Is it, though? What what do you mean, this isn't an Eighth Doctor adventure? That's definitely the branding on the outside of the CD. I know that's the logo they slapped on the CD cover, but (laughs) (laughs) did this feel like a proper adventure to you? Sorry, the vitriol is already starting. That's fine. That's (laughs) warranted. Yes, not much happened. That's the thing. I was somewhat disappointed to find that it is, you know what, structurally, it kind of matches, let's say, Ridley Scott's Alien or something. They're aboard a spaceship, they're aboard the TARDIS, and there's some sort of monster creeping and crawling around, except it's also creeping and crawling around through time. But it's there, and they have to hide, and they have to, oh no, there's something behind you, oh, we gotta run, yada yada yada, but it is never, ever scary. Oh, you don't think? Did you think so? Which scenes did you find uh, thrilling? Actually, the scene I found best was not one where the fish was at all present. Okay. It was when they were on the holding deck, which I would like to talk some more about later. Mm-hmm. And the TARDIS architecture is shrinking because the yes. energy is being sucked away from it. And in both your ears, well, first Lucy Miller says, Is it me? Are those wells getting closer? And you can hear hard left and hard right walls scraping slowly towards you. They are closing in. It was really effective for me. It was fantastic. I agree with you. I made a note of that scene as well. What I wrote was the effect of walls closing in on them and then the room expanding again is amazing. Mm. There are a few, maybe let's say a handful of scenes where the production value is just out of this world, where Big Finish proves yet again that they're pros. They do this very, very well. And similarly to that, there is a scene where Alex and Lucy are in the control room and the fish, they say, is definitely circling them. And it's just panning from left to right, I'm sure. But that combined with the mental image of them circling is making me imagine that the sound is going, well, it's three-dimensional, essentially. It's going in front of me and then behind me. And that really worked for me as well. And that was the best scene with the fish for me. Okay, sure, sure. (laughs) I agree with you. It is really well produced. Although there's one element of it that I do want to talk about separately, which I thought was maybe not quite as effective as they had intended. But taking a step back from production values, I just thought that the idea, the fish itself, to me, was not interesting. 
and it was never scary. And this whole echoing back from the future, the Doctor's voice echoing back, it was dealt with in so blasé a manner by the Doctor himself that it didn't seem particularly uh, terrifying. Yeah. If the Doctor himself is not terrified by it, then why would I be? There's that, and the problem is is that you have a bottle episode, so there's Which is very, fine. there is literally hardly any room for manoeuvre. Then you lock in the future, and there's only one way you can go. The parallel it brings to mind, and this isn't only a story parallel, but also in parallel with the vitriol you are clearly feeling, <laughs> is Tim Burton's version of Alice in Wonderland. All right, okay. Which I utterly hated. You've seen it, have you? Yes, I have. That was terrible as well. Absolutely I, I swear, by the way, in podcast land, I am capable of loving media and entertainment. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. We'll make some reference to something else that I've also seen or ingested in some other way and that I really enjoyed. I'm sure most of podcast land are on board, right? Same page club? I would think so. Yeah. Thought bubble? You guys get us. That's why you're listening. Anyway, the point is, Alice in Wonderland, near the beginning, I think it may even be when she meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Two Nardoles, by the way. Yes, you're right. They lay out a scroll, and the scroll essentially is a prophecy, and it lays out, almost scene by scene, the rest of the film. And from that point on, there is zero tension zero peril zero doubt zero uncertainty and then uh oh, don't get me started on how christopher lee's the voice of the jabberwocky and gets one fucking line but anyway th the <laughs> point is the next hour and a half is just a waste of time replaying what you've already seen and that is also present here yes sure I think maybe you can make the argument that that is true of any story that involves a temporal loop of sorts. I mean, this is not quite a loop, but it's sort of a loop where yeah, time with so a narrative is going to fold back in on itself. The same applies to all of those stories, but because so little else happens in this one. Yes, yes. That's why I can't think of a good example of this in some other book or some other film or whatever, audiobook or anything, but I've certainly had this happen before where then towards the end of a film, say, you go, oh my goodness, yes, the whole thing was foretold in the beginning. I forgot about it because stuff happened along the way to distract you from that prophecy. And yeah. that then makes that prophecy in the beginning so much more impactful. But here, that's all you get. There's yeah. nothing else. <clears throat> and with a two-hour film or a more artful one-hour audiobook, I would add, it's sure. possible. They would find a different angle on it. There would be a twist halfway through or something else that you hadn't seen. But here, after 10 or 15 minutes, you hear the doctor saying, Reason the trap! And that can only mean one thing. There's yeah. a trap it's probably going to work, and it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That being said, I have made a note of that particular effect as another one of those, let's say, handful of production value elements that I found really quite admirable. The voice effect echoing back through time, and it made me think of... Did you ever watch Justice League? No. Yeah, don't. Maybe satisfy some nerd urge and watch the Snyder Cut when that comes out, but Justice League is a dumpster fire. So I should not watch Justice League, but I should watch a rejected double-length version of Justice League. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, right. sure. <laughs> Only because I can't tell you that the Snyder Cut is terrible because it doesn't exist yet. But the version that does exist is terrible. But in it, spoiler alert for Justice League, there's this one scene. It's in the fucking trailer. Sorry. It is. It's, <laughs> it's in the trailer where the Flash has sort of a Flash 
forwards, whatever. It's a call forward to some film that they will probably never make because <laughs> that franchise is tanking. Or maybe they will. Who knows? They'll make this film in several years and The Flash is running so quickly he manages to send a message back through time. And it's very similar to what we get here. Here you have the Doctor hearing the vibrato of his future voice echoing back at him. Yeah. And in Justice League you have Batman having Flash echo back at him. And the effect here was a million times better than what was achieved in Justice League. That is a hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Hollywood laying on that production. Here it's just like a handful of dudes in the Big Finish studios and they did a fantastic job. Yeah, the Big Finish dudes aren't mere franchise hacks. Exactly, yeah. They know their stuff. Yeah, I liked that. And I did like the crackling of the fish to an extent. I liked when the Doctor was riding the fish. Hey all. <laughs> And the crackling was intensified. You felt like you were right there with him. Sure. I mean, you kind of feel like you're right there with them in every Big Finish story, more or less. Yeah, I know, but when you need to be right there for the excitement to be fever pitch, they do a good job of putting you absolutely nose to nose with the main character. They know what they're doing. The production values, far and away, the biggest plus in this episode, I would say. Along with McGann, surely McGann did an adequate job. I'm assuming you're talking about Paul McGann. Oh, of course, I have to, I have to specify <laughs> my McGann. Yes, McGann Senior. McGann Senior, yeah, he did a good job. I, I think, well, okay, oh, I don't want to dip into my mini bullet points, but he did a good job, but he did not do as great a job as he normally does. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't think that anyone really did. Sorry, no, Caroline Ford. She was stellar, I thought. But Lucy Miller was a little trying too hard maybe to be Lucy Miller. Didn't really get that much to do of interest to me. Doc was very repetitive. Yeah, I would say that Lucy Miller, there were a couple of points where they were trying to reach for, oh, this is a joke Lucy would say at this point. Some ribald humour wouldn't go amiss. And they didn't quite nail it. No, I don't think so either. There were some jokes that just didn't even make sense. Like the doctor is saying, don't say knickers or something. Like, really? <laughs> really? Yeah, like, she's about to say the Knickerbocker glory, but without... And then he's like, Lucy, oh, you scamp. And it's like, no, not, <laughs> not even remotely scampish. <laughs> I don't know. I think Sheridan Smith did okay. I don't want to get to the elephant in the room yet, but I think that everyone seemed like a better actor <laughs> in comparison. Oh, yes, I completely agree with that. Also, yeah, let's leave Jake McGann for a later bullet point in this review. But, <laughs> but there are a couple of scenes when Lucy Miller and um, what's his name? Whatever his name is. Alex. Alex, thank you. Yeah, Alex Campbell. When they're separated off and they have their own little mini adventure... You could really see the frustration in Sheridan Smith's eyes at having to act opposite a cardboard cutout of a person. (laughs) By comparison, yes, I agree, she did a good job. But again, no one really got to do much in this one. No. Sheridan Smith is a fantastic actress. She's been absolutely wonderful as Lucy Miller in, in these stories, but she normally gets to flex her acting muscles, and there was no opportunity for that here. A lot of the time here, she's relegated to the kitchen. Which oh, yes, that's could true. be a comment on Christmas. Once you get to Christmas, the old traditional gender roles do tend to win out, and sure. the, the men will lounge around on the sofa. I am as guilty of that as the next unreconstructed caveman. I celebrated Christmas Eve. I was invited to a Christmas Eve dinner at Marie's and Jim's last mm-hmm. year. 
and Jim was handling the cooking. Uh huh. So I'm gonna point that out. Well, excellent. And <laughs> did he do a bang up job and provide oh, holy a moly. feast? The dude can cook. Yeah, he's a triple threat. He's charming. He can code, and he can cook. <laughs> nice. He's got all the C's. <laughs> Yes, I do see what you're saying. Lucy did at least have the chance to vary her tone. She got exasperated with the but Gallifreyans on, at one point. Yeah, but only ever, so, only ever so slightly. Yeah, ever so slightly. And it seemed quite jarring. It, I mean, she went from nervous to uh, stroppy and loud on the, uh, what am I thinking, a flip of a coin? What was the phrase? The turn of a dime. Yeah, on the turn of a dime. Thank <laughs> you. And there's another bit which I made a note of, which is where um, it seemed incongruous... Alex asks her if she's an alien. Yeah. And she's really prickly in her response. But I think perhaps the script called for a bit more hostility in Alex's question than, <laughs> shall we say, came through in the final edit. Yeah. Like, I, like there's I think more of an accusation. I think you're 100% right. And I was going to ask you, has Lucy just gone off on one that way before? Or no, maybe not... we could... Are we supposed to infer that Alex gave her an improper look? Or is this purely a question of the acting? I think it is just the acting. Sure, she has a bit of a temperament, but no, she wouldn't react so inappropriately to a perfectly neutral question asked to her by a piece of cardboard. An 18-year-old piece of cardboard who is, for some reason, extremely dear to the Doctor and who she's trying to make a good impression with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Lucy's a bit more worldly wise than that. Yeah, and she doesn't even really try to... We often get her being not necessarily arrogant, but certainly a bit... She's fun. She gets to even poke fun at people who are just ancillary characters when she's... I'm trying to remember the names of all these audiobooks that we've reviewed, but what we've had... She was in the monastery, for example, and she just meets someone who later on is going to turn out to be really important, and... No, sorry. Oh, no. Someone is seeing her. Someone is meeting her, and even when she's portraying someone else, she's just poking fun at them. Every time she's met an alien, she's never shied away from going, oh, oh, that's weird. Ugh. Like, just making voices. I don't know. I can't think of any good examples, but she no, was dude, so she, meh she is... in, this, in these scenes. Yeah, typically, she's the audio version of Donna Noble. Lots of fun. Hilarious to be around. And I can see yeah. why you would say that, yes. <laughs> You're thinking of the Book of Kells, by the way. That is the one I was thinking of. You're right. I don't think that this is any fault of Sheridan Smith's. I just feel that her character has not been particularly fleshed out in this audiobook, and she's not getting much material to act against. Yeah, she's having to do a, a lot of heavy lifting. It's weird. There are only four characters in this episode, and that is one too many. Yeah. Falls a crowd. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Let's tackle Alex Campbell yes. so that we can get that out of the way and then we can actually talk about the character a little bit as well. We, we need to talk about Alex vis a vis Jake. Okay. Get it off your chest, man. Well, there's so much. In fact, I've got a whole section of my notes just, <laughs> just <Same> devoted <laughs> to it. <laughs> Do you know what? I actually say that he's better than in the previous episode. That's the first thing I say. The previous episode being an earthly child. Yeah, I wonder if I agree with you. There's a scene towards the end where he seems to <laughs> inflect. <laughs> yes. Which is more than he did in an, unearth- pardon me, an, un- ugh, an earthly child. Yeah. But 
again, he does more in that one than he does here. Everyone does more in An Earthly Child than they do here. Including Sheridan Smith, who wasn't even in it. Yeah, that's a paradox. My point is, I don't know if I can agree with you. Maybe he's had a talking to, a stern talking to by his dad. Don't you embarrass me again, son, between these two recordings. But then he's <laughs> he's also faced with a script that's relatively linear and a bit bland in places. Well, it is. Sorry, Mark Platt. But uh, I'm going to dip into the post-credits interview here. Okay. Which, as we have discussed, increasingly just reads as flat-out lies. Yeah. Especially for an episode like this, which we don't like. The guy who's introducing it, he may have been the director or some other big Finnish honcho, he says that having Jake McGann play opposite Paul McGann lends a sort of reality to the touching bits, brought a little extra zing to it. So I, I can see what they were going for. Yeah, but I also completely disagree with that because those two characters don't have many scenes together. Well, first of all, it's entirely untrue. Secondly, they do have scenes together, but they're so forgettable. I mean, there's a whole family Christmas that they're trying to have and they broadly follow through the sequence of one. They exchange presents, they sit down for dinner. There's stuff in the aftermath as well. But it all just blends together because everything Jake McGann delivers blends is together. identical. Absolutely. Yeah. Jake McGann is an alum from the Kristen Stewart School of Acting. He is one note. Like he is a one note actor. And normally that's not to be taken literally, but in his case, it really is. Yes. And the next note I have is Alex talking in the interview after the credits he sounds exactly the same as in the episode even as he's saying the very words my dad is so different when he's playing doctor who he gets so enthusiastic <laughs> there's your lesson there to be learned mcgann jr i mean maybe it skips a generation and he's gonna sigh the next olivier who knows my favourite line delivery of Jake McGann's in this one. I don't know if you want to pull a soundbite for this. It's 32 minutes and 45 seconds in. It's when his character rushes to uh, his mum's aid and he goes, Mum, get clear of the door. <laughs> I can hear it. <laughs> That's an excellent impression. Soundbite. <laughs> Yeah, I think he just suffers. He's got the flattest, dreariest tone. I think his voice box, his vocal cords are just inherently limited. I don't think so, because there are also in the behind-the-scenes interviews, there are a few clips of uh, offcuts, like outtakes. Yeah. And he's joking with the rest of the gang. So he's laughing, and he seems like he's probably a nice chap. Maybe he's a little nervous to be in there, but... Yeah, he's concentrating super hard, and it's just limiting... Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't know. Although, 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 I made a note of... In the out-of-breath sequence, which we've talked about, the TARDIS is running out of oxygen. Yeah. And this comes down to sound effects as well. This isn't just verbiage. Sheridan Smith is loudly, theatrically gasping for air from the get-go. Oh, oh, I think it's as thick as soup. She's on the very cusp of asphyxiation. Carol Ann Ford, oh, oh, is puffing a bit. Oh, goodness. Oh, oh, Doctor, oh, Grandfather. And Jake McGann, well, shall we say his sexy hotline wouldn't deliver any happy endings. Because <laughs> he just turns up and is like, I've been round the ring. Yeah. That's it. That, that is exactly it. <laughs> but then that's where a director should step in and go, buddy, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
just run around the studio, do 10 laps, and then come in and read these lines? Or just yeah, tell him, you are out of breath, okay? Is it so difficult to imagine that? How big would the balls on this director have to be to withstand the withering glare of Paul McGann, who has his hand on Sonny Boy's shoulder, or no, it, him. who has his hand on the director's shoulder. Yeah, one hand on Sonny Boy, <laughs> the other hand on Barnaby Edwards' shoulder. <laughs> He's Looking doing from a... one to the other meaningfully. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it, Barry? A eh? wink, wink. <laughs> oh, very good, sir. Ever so humble. Ever so humble. <laughs> Uh, next scene, Jakey boy. <laughs> Alex Foreman is meant to be an 18-year-old who grew up in post-apocalyptic England <laughs> and is yeah. now inside a space and time machine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. It's really big. His bigger on the inside scene is about as enthralling as accidentally sitting down on yourself. This guy <laughs> is... Wow. Wow, dude. I mean, oh, I, I can't say I've ever done that. <laughs> There's a mental image. Oh, I just don't get it. He is the least exciting 18-year-old ever, but he's also, in fairness, and again, I'm really sorry, Mark Platt, I'm really sorry, Mr. Platt, but this 18-year-old doesn't seem to have been written to be excited either. I mean, I would have expected him to go like, oh my goodness, this Christmas spread is a cornucopia. I grew up in a world post-alien invasion. He should be shocked by everything that happens. Yeah, Sheridan Smith flat out asks him, do you have any technology in the 22nd century? And he's like, what is this technology of which you speak? He's like, I've never heard of anything good that works. Yeah, but then the character of Alex Campbell never never gawks at anything. He never oohs and ahs. He's never seemingly impressed. No, no, that is beyond his range, definitely. But not only that, he's not written to be, is what I'm saying. Oh, I think maybe Mark Platt just is too used to working with capable actors who will inject the necessary verve for him. Yeah, that's that's very true as well. Or possible, I mean. He's not used to teaching people how to suck eggs, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and instead he has to deal with maybe a degree of nepotism. Yeah, and a chap who's... Yeah, he's not cut out to be an actor, but it doesn't seem like he's necessarily trying to be one either. You pointed out the last time, the first time that we met this guy, that he has an IMDb page with nothing on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like he's trying to go down this route. He should just stick to accounting or something. (laughs) That's fine. Yeah, completely fine. Everyone doesn't have to be an actor just because their dad is a super famous one. No, and maybe this is the statement that Jake McGann was trying to put across. He made it unmistakable. This will shut dad up. Holy moly. Is Jake McGann Harrison Fording in Blade Runner? Yes. Yes, he is. That's what he's doing. He's deliberately reading his lines super flat so that he doesn't get cast in the next one. Also, (laughs) because he wants to sabotage this production... Jake McGann, chapeau. I am very impressed. I take back everything everything I've said so far. Yeah, because if that's what you were trying to achieve, bravo, sir. Yes, bravo. Flying <laughs> monochrome. <laughs> oh, dear. And the problem is, he does sound a bit like he's enjoying himself a bit more in this episode. The tone is more agreeable but he's a quarter of the cast here back on 22nd century dalek ruined earth there was a whole country full of people trying to take advantage of him and he was one of a world of characters and now he's 25 percent yeah it's a step up to the plate Ugh. yeah anyway (laughs) 
I have a number of other sort of mini paragraphs written up about Jake McGann and his acting chops. I'm just going to leave them out. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I feel like maybe we've been a little harsh on the guy. You know what? Maybe I'll read them out later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see how much material we need. It does lead me on to a question that isn't about Jake specifically. It's okay. more about Alex. Yeah, let's hear it. It's the question of ordinary versus extraordinary characters and companions. Right. Okay. Because I presented, as you know, and as podcast land I'm now telling you, a scene from the first part of our audiobook to a writing society I'm involved with. Yeah. And one of the saddest things wasn't their review of my scene. It was afterwards everybody prefaced their feedback with a story of how they used to watch Doctor Who, used to love Doctor Who, fell out of love with Doctor Who, don't watch it anymore. And multiple people said that they got tired during the Stephen Moffat era of each companion being more extraordinary than the one before. Amy was the girl who waited. Rory was the guy who waited two millennia. Clara was the impossible girl. And that just grated on people after five series of that crap. And here we have the exact opposite. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, if anything, the scene that shows us the long row of former companions' rooms is testament to the fact that they are very, they're expendable, they're replaceable. Yeah, so I guess there are pros and cons to both. But should a companion be extraordinary? A companion surely can't be this ordinary. You've already described him as cardboard on multiple occasions. Yeah. I mean, first of all, he's related to the Doctor in every conceivable way. Which is fine. Susan was related to the Doctor. Yes, and is throughout this episode. Yes, exactly. Susan is the granddaughter and was a companion of the Doctor's for a long time. And that worked. That's fine. Yeah, but Alex, Alex is so ordinary. There's the nepotism question and then there's, does he only seem so ordinary to me? Because like me, he's a standard English white guy. And I just, judging him as this ordinary from a colorblind standpoint of white privilege, where he represents the companion. He doesn't need any adjectives. He's not the black companion, the BAME companion, the Muslim companion. I mean, he is the doctor's great-grandson, but am I seeing him as that ordinary because of what we share? I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, so I don't necessarily have a direct answer to that question, but I have a couple of other questions for you that might, in a roundabout way, lead us to an answer. Okay. Question number one, why does the doctor want to recruit him now? Well, he's very sentimental in this episode. Oh, goodness. I mean, we haven't heard the end of Alex's arc yet. Have we We not? No, no, he comes back. Oh, um, in uh, either Lucy Miller or To the Death, yeah. Both of those, yeah. The double pass at the end of this series. Oh, great, so we get to end with Jake McGann as well. Wonderful. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did they perhaps consider... This is speculation that most people will know the answer to. <laughs> so, oh, was he perhaps... Are you going to suggest that he could have been the next companion, but then because it's showbiz, it didn't happen? Well, possibly, because Susan says in her post-credits interview that she can't figure out how the dynamic would work. Were she to resume her companioning or her assistanting with the Doctor, she's older than him now. He'd be dragging around a middle-aged woman in the TARDIS. She can't see it. Whereas Alex is of a young impressionable venturesome age so that would seem to fit perhaps big finish's motives but that doesn't necessarily count for an in-universe explanation of why the doctor wants to i mean he wants to get to know alex doesn't he 
Yeah, and this it, is this is the only way he knows how to bond with people. He goes adventuring, people come along with him, or he forgets they exist. Sometimes for forty plus years. Yes, but it seems strange to me that he wants to recruit him right now when he still has a companion. He doesn't know that Lucy Miller's going to leave at the end of it. Okay, hang on. I've got more follow-up questions to this to sort of pile onto it, and we will get to an answer about Alex Campbell. Okay. Isn't it more or less insinuated that the reason he isn't special is that he is not as Gallifreyan, quote-unquote, as the Doctor is hoping? He's 93% non-Gallifreyan, which is a mystery that they do not resolve. Yeah, yeah, true. So that's in the mix as to uh, what, what needs to be tied together at the end of the series. I suppose that is... Well, I don't know if it has to be tied implied. together... Oh, it will be. They devoted a whole scene to it. The Doctor in the lab. That has to. If that's not picked up, then that's a minus point. Hmm. Someone's okay. been meddling with his DNA. I would like to think. Oh, you think so? Okay. Maybe. Maybe it's just it works the opposite way that Judaism views it. You know, <laughs> you inherit it. Maybe you inherit it from your dad. Maybe you inherit Time Lords <laughs> from your dad. Oh right, maybe. That's not it, though, because he would have zero, wouldn't he? Oh, that's true, yeah. Well, you know, mostly. I mean, he's a mix. What percentage is he supposed to have? We don't know the generation between Susan and the Doctor. We'd never meet the Susan's children or child. So so Susan, we could assume... She might be half human. Yes. For example. I mean, also with McGann, the question is uniquely complicated. That's true. I'm of the opinion that he is 100% Gallifreyan, the human on his mother's side thing that's the movie only yeah and that's what we want to believe and i'm I'm sure they have spoken to that at some point i think they have yeah but then in addition to that because otherwise i mean it wouldn't make sense there weren't humans on gallifrey he only they weren't allowed it was the most racist society in the galaxy yes and he didn't meet humans until after he left gallifrey so anyway it doesn't matter it doesn't matter let's put to one side the fact that the doctor isn't originally from gallifrey but but sure but sure oh also, that didn't happen. I'm sorry. That's the year <laughs> of the gas leak. <laughs> but then in addition to that, Alex is a combination of Susan, of Gallifreyan origin, and David, who is human. David Campbell. Yep. If not somewhat potato. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he should have said that. 7% Gallifreyan and 43% Percent potato. potato. <laughs> it's coming out of like a ticker tape out of the DNA <laughs> reader. What is it? Maris Piper. (laughs) (laughs) Charlotte? Edward? What is this family tree? (laughs) At least he's descended from royalty. (laughs) Anywho, I mean, you asked, he's not special, right? You brought this up. He's not special the way that the Moffat era companions are always special. But it seems as though the reason he's not special is that he is human. Yeah. As in mostly human. How does that tally? The Doctor's current companion at that point is wholly human. Yeah. And Lucy Miller, as we've seen, is very special. I mean, maybe the arc will be that the Doctor will realise, you know what, Alex, Susan was right. She's been telling me this all along. I haven't been listening. Alex, you're not Time Lord Academy material. Still less are you my companion material. I guess I should give it up and stop being so sentimental and move on. All right, hang on. I've got other questions related to uh, (laughs) Lucy Miller and Alex Campbell. 
Right, right. How old is Lucy meant to be? Well, you've known her a lot longer than I have, so could you shed some light on that? I'm inclined to say she's in her maybe mid-twenties. I'm going to look this up. That sounds fair. She's a year older than she was when she left the Doctor in Blackpool, I suppose. Hang on, I'm looking it up. Born in 1988. Oh, right. So were we to follow her linearly to the point of this being released, she would be 22. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Fine. So she's 22. He's 18. Yeah. They've it's only... fine. It's just like a fourth year going out the first year. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's completely fine. But, <laughs> I mean, they don't start a romance or anything like that during this episode. But it's clearly just that they're going to go off and bone across Europe now, right? Yeah, this is the beginning of their Euro trip. Isn't that super weird? It hasn't been set up in any way at all. And by the way, they're going to future Europe. They're not going to Lucy's present day Europe. And the doctor's just like, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, Lucy, you're just gonna, you're gonna leave the TARDIS to go and interrail across post-apocalyptic Europe with my 18-year-old super hormonal cardboard great-grandson. <laughs> He's devoid of personality, but he's got a heck of a boner. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> does he? It sounds like his hormones are all sedatives. <laughs> but no, you're you're so right. Why would you not go and see the monuments while now. they are? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. While they are much more complete than before the Daleks destroyed them. Yeah, he's interested in architecture. The Doctor gives him some architectural drawings by Leonardo da Vinci himself. And he's just like, yeah, cool. Uh, you know what it is? He can now go to Florence and he can see all the shattered marble foundations, which are all that's left. And he can compare them to the blueprints and be like, oh, wow, the doctor was right. These are really accurate. <laughs> if only there was some way that I could see these buildings in their heyday. Oh, well. <laughs> Can't think <laughs> of a way. <laughs> And Lucy Miller's going to get bored after one shag and two ruins. She's going to see if there's a pub anywhere, and there won't be a pub anywhere. (laughs) No. Well, maybe there will be. Maybe they've rebuilt society to a degree, sure, but still, she's not going to be happy. The first thing the Italians are going to rebuild are the the tavernas, right? Yes, and the cafes. Yeah. Sure, but... (sighs) No, I don't buy that as an ending. I really don't buy it. It's very rushed. And if the intention was to show us their burgeoning chemistry, that's entirely unrealized. I mean, it just sounds like they both had intentions and they serendipitously aligned. That seems to be the only motivation. Yeah, because there's never a scene where they express any kind of admiration for each other. They don't get a scene where they prove themselves worthy. He never has an opportunity to display his virtues to her. No, and when they handle the foe together at the end, they don't congratulate each other. No. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It really is just at the service of the macro structure, isn't it? Absolutely. So I guess we'll see in two audiobooks' time. Maybe that's supposed to be the point. After three months of Lucy pogoing up and down him across a continent, <laughs> he's going to be the most florid, vivacious, expressive person. Possible. Oh, maybe. I'd really enjoy that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I should also say, to come back to my question, of course Alex is white and English because Susan was left in England married to a potato. And there's only one way <laughs> ethnically you can go with that. 
<laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not so woke as to say that there can't be any <laughs> white, boring English people in Doctor Who anymore. He just sort of exemplifies it. And for that to stand as ordinary is the only thing I'm trying to poke a hole in. Yeah. All right. And the way that that could stand as like an everyman stand in, you know, someone with no discernible charisma or special abilities gets to ride in the TARDIS. <laughs> not this guy. He does all the problematizing for me, actually. I don't even need to open my mouth. No more guys like this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Big finish. How about we take a look at some other elements of this story? Let's. What have we got? We haven't talked about the aliens. What aliens? Well, we have the Fleda Shrews and we have the Blitzenfish. Oh, yes. The carnival of alien animals in the TARDIS. Yes, that's right. Apparently, we encountered Fleda Shrews in Nevermore. I don't recall that. In Nevermore? Really? Yeah, I looked up Fleda Shrews and they'd appeared in, I think, a novel and a couple of audiobooks and Nevermore was among them. Oh, I mean, there could have been a line referring to them, but Nevermore didn't take place in the TARDIS, really. That's true. He would have picked them up from somewhere else in some past audio book where they played a more prominent role, you know, where he saved them from extinction. And now they're bloody extinct. Now they are no more. They have ceased to be. Yep, they are Nevermore. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Well done, Mark Platt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're just bats. They're just bats, like yeah, exactly. Vortisaurs, uh, pterodactyls. I mean, they're just one-to-one um, matches, Analogous, they? yeah. They're... Yeah, an- analogies, that's the word. That's the word, thank you, in your fourth language. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, for saving my ass. So the Blitzenfish, very much the same, except that it flies. I thought that the introduction of the Blitzenfish was marvellous, though. I mean, the Blitzenfish is... Basing this not so much on how it's described in audiobook, but on the audiobook cover. <laughs> it's referenced in the post-credit sequence. It's it's a lionfish, is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah, except it flies. And the way that the Doctor introduces it, I thought was lovely. It's basically just, he's describing a fish. and says, yeah, it has these spikes and whatever, fine. But it is, I'm paraphrasing, it's sort of unencumbered by gravity. <laughs> I was like, oh! I get it. That's a nice way of saying it is just flying into the room. I mean, he obviously, he is more florid. He has a whole yeah, outlay it is, of it. It's swimming in the air, oblivious of gravity, under the surface of our dimensions. There you go. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, yes it is. Oh, I should have made a note of that. Clearly, it, it made an impression, but it wasn't memorable enough. <laughs> and that also helps you visualize the fish quite well. I mean, everybody's going to visualize that differently. There's going to be a bit of a fin and then it's going to be some sort of fade effect and some wibble wobble. But it's really easy to imagine. Yeah. Like the holding ring, which I put a pin in earlier, described as a sort of roulette wheel of revolving doors. That is also really easy to imagine. I agree, yeah. There are a few bits here that they were done incredibly well in script and incredibly well in production. Mm -hmm. But emphasis on the few. Yeah, they were occasional. They were few and far between. Yes, exactly. Sorry, just a quick note about the Blitzenfish as well. Also known as a resurrection fish. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through that? And also, is that this is the reason I originally added the <laughs> the fishes and woes notes? There's a resurrection element here. There's also the fish being a a symbol. I mean, we, we this is a Christmas episode. The fish being a symbol for Christianity or maybe Jesus specifically. Oh, there you go. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> well and it done. is a yes. resurrection fish. But what was the yeah, resurrection so element here? I'm so literal. I was thinking that would be much more appropriate for Easter. But yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> 
throw it all in the mix, I think that's pretty good. To me, I was put in mind of those dinosaur sponges that you add water to. And in The Simpsons, of course, it grows to a full dinosaur size and starts eating Lisa (laughs) (laughs) when Bart activates it. And that's what I sort of imagined this fish was. Why on earth the Doctor would buy Susan a dead, dried out husk of a fish? And what kind of damaged kid wants one? Yeah, of all the things on <laughs> that market in yeah. the fourth universe where You're that's in Fourth universe souk. There are just like so many colors and smells and sounds. Everything's exciting. People are talking hundreds of languages around you and you stare at a dead fish and go like, I want that one, granddad. Yeah, but you don't hear those hundreds of languages. That The TARDIS just homogenizes it into okay, one fine, that's bland true. screed of English. That's true, but you can still smell the spices and hear the sounds and it's it's exciting, right? Yeah, but it's then... all turned into salt and pepper by the TARDIS <laughs> matrix. <laughs> the, the translation matrix. Yeah. <laughs> Every meal turns into porridge. <laughs> Every yeah. taste sensation is just wet grain. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make this unchallenging and simple for you to understand. <laughs> Thanks, TARDIS. But so is that why it was called a resurrection fish? That occasionally it'll just die and then it'll be resurrected? It'll revive itself? Yeah. Right, okay. But for apparently an indefinite period of time. That's one of it. I mean, extended hibernation, isn't it? Right, but yeah. it essentially stasis locks itself until an energy source comes near. Which, sure, why not? Yeah, I guess I'm fine with that. However, I didn't find that it was initialized in the story properly. There's just this almost retconning of, oh yeah, wait, hang on, we haven't established how this fish arrived here. Let's just have a super quick line about how Susan got it as a present once. Well, that line is also setting up a completely different audiobook, which I assure you we will not be reviewing. (laughs) Also written by Mark Platt, a companion chronicle for Susan, where they go to Quinnis, and we hear the hundreds of Englishes and smell the hundreds of salts and peppers. And the Doctor, for some wacky reason, I'm almost tempted, but not really at all, to learn <laughs> to listen to why, it. what possible rationale Susan can have going, oh, 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 grandfather. I simply must have this fish. Dead fish. Look at its red spines. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so given that we haven't heard this audiobook, and did you say that it's setting that up so that audiobook hasn't even been released at the time of this episode being released? Correct. Right. Thank you, K9. So in that case, all the more reason to set up the fish, to introduce the fish beforehand. They're walking through the TARDIS. What are we cooking? Can we cook this? Can we cook that? Can I have some fish and chips? No, don't touch that. That's my dead dry fish. Okay, cool. Oh, give me the story about it. Great. Blah, blah, blah. Five minutes later, fish is gone. Did freaking Jake McGann eat my dead fish? I mean, what's his name? Fuck, why can I never remember his name? Alex Campbell, can he not Alex... wait for Christmas dinner? Exactly. Where's my so fish? so many parsnips. Dag nabbits. Oh, now I've lost my favorite dead fish. All right, fine. Cooking parsnips, blah, 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 blah. Five minutes later, <laughs> perfectly living, floating, interdimensional fish gets into the room. Boom. It's been set up. Yeah, and she doesn't have a name for it. Isn't that weird? She picks this out of all the items for sale in this unimaginably rich and fecund souk, and she hasn't called it Stilly or Tableau or (laughs) 
<laughs> some other pet name for it. You know what? Strike the thing that I said before. She's nailed the fish onto a plank, okay? And it's <laughs> hanging off the wall. And uh, Alex Campbell, I'm having to look at my notes because like, that is a name that will not fix itself in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Campbell walks past it and goes, oh, do you press a button and it sings a song for you? It's like, no, it's oh, not that kind of bass. thing. Exactly. No, it's not one of those, Jake. It's an alien dead fish that I bought at a market because I have no imagination. Then fast forward five to eight minutes and then the fish is gone and boom, boom, I, boom. I like to play pin the tail on the fish. Wait, I can find it. I've still got the old <laughs> tail that I bought from when I went back to Renaissance Venice and all I could fixate on was finding a fish tail. And wait, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> and why isn't the fish singing, take me to the river, <laughs> throw me in the water? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heck. <laughs> oh, all right, what else have we got? <laughs> have the doctor visiting bethlehem oh yeah this is what i've written down as my leonardo anecdotes that's it yeah. right well once in royal david city plays quietly in the background nice touch <laughs> how did you feel about that anecdote i really liked it ah, um... just because i'm christian doesn't mean i get to have the final say what did you think no no wait 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 why did you really like it well because i have talked to you before before Moffat wrote his final Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time, before we knew what it was going to be about, I thought that he was going to go out on a bang and just completely blow apart the nativity story. Take Peter Capaldi back and just have him demythologize every single element of it. Here, he gets to go to Bethlehem. He sticks, uh, should I say religiously, to the details. <laughs> and he goes exactly as far as I want him to go. And to have Leonardo say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. I mean, even for me, uh, era-defining genius, I can't. I'm overawed by the prospect of meeting the Christ child. I really liked it. I thought it was well set up and well delivered and well thought through. Hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you on this one. I liked the fact that it stops at a point where it's basically saying, I prefer to keep the story in my mind. I don't want to tainted with personal experience and also i felt like maybe i read too much into this but i felt like it might be insinuated that leonardo didn't want to tamper with that situation either like if i go in there maybe i'm adding something to this scene that shouldn't be there like Ooh, sort of yes. sabotaging everything from that point on up until his point in the timeline you know? yeah yeah there'll be four kings instead of three gold frankincense myrrh a little helicopter model <laughs> <laughs> i mean that proves he was the son of God, right? Because, I mean, he's going to dreamt up a helicopter 1,900 years before we built one. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, okay, cool. And also, it, it gives McGann a chance to hold you wrapped in attention while he tells a story, which surely counts as a highlight in this hour that we've listened to. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Okay, as far as this anecdote goes, I'm more on board with the principle of it than the execution. Oh, okay. Yeah, I feel like it kind of, it took the pace out of it. In fact, this whole episode is very weirdly paced. And this story, this anecdote told by, by the doctor at the table, is itself an example of how heterogeneous the pacing is. Like, occasionally, it, like, occasionally it just seems to forget what kind of story it is, and it just goes into almost farcical speeds 
during the dinner yeah. and then it just boom jumps into you hear the choir in the background and he's telling his leonardo anecdote and it took me out of it a little bit yeah it's staccato intermittent something like that sure sure uh, desultory Ooh. oh wonderful go words desultory yeah oh Yes, there's barely a story at all. So I think at points this episode even forgets that it has one. Yeah, the whole thing is like the act one of a Baz Luhrmann movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> where, yeah. where, but with less exposition. There's not much going on. There's a bit of exposition and pacing is just all over the place. Yeah, all parts one, two and three of a Who Back When audiobook adventure. But, but, uh, yeah, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> There's one point I noted where they, I'm talking about the fish. You hear the fish fizzing and crackling uh-huh. and sparking three or four times. Yeah. And I think that was an attempt to pace the story. But the problem is that the appearances of the fish don't build or go anywhere. No, I mean, it just, it happens, it appears, and then it's over. You progress to the next scene. Yeah, and I get that that's a function, perhaps, of the fish being pan-dimensional and pan-temporal. And, hey, here's a story with time as a constitutive plot device, Leon. Yeah, it didn't impress me much. (laughs) (laughs) And so the fish could absolutely randomly appear at any moment and does. Yeah. But with no pattern to it. You're right. It's just like, is something going to happen this time? Mm, No, it's not. Maybe I should stop getting my hopes up. (laughs) What's the ghost episode with Capaldi, where the uh, future lady, one of the first time travellers, is constantly reaching back through time trying to talk to them? Oh, I know. Oh, wait, maybe it's not a Capaldi one. Maybe it's a... Is it a Matt Smith one? I know the one you mean. Clara's definitely in it. Clara's absolutely in it. It's got that weird skeleton guy. Hyde. Hyde, yes. Thank you very much. Hyde. Uh Matt Smith. Yeah, I've just found it. In that one, just at random intervals, you guess her apparition suddenly reaching back through time, echoing both the Doctor in this one and the fishy fish, the Mm -hmm. Blitzen fish. Who appears with a lot of, you know, Donda. Yes. (laughs) Donna. Oh, sorry, Donna. Oh, Donda Donna. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I'm bringing that up. I I guess just because in Hyde, whenever something like that happens, you build a scene around it. That's a momentous occasion. People observe this happening. They draw conclusions from it. They foresee the next time that it will happen, or they try to anyway. They try to read something more into it, but here, nothing comes of it. There's a scene where Lucy Miller and... uh, Seriously, I was about to call him Jason. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Alex Campbell. (laughs) Write it on your one good hand. (laughs) Actually, no, then you have to use your bad hand. Oh, never mind. I've I've just highlighted it in bold in my notes. I'll find (laughs) it more quickly next time. So there's a scene where Lucy Miller and and Alex Campbell, whose name I can absolutely remember. Seamless. They're standing around and she's saying, Oh, me, 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 now. And he's saying, And then all of a sudden she goes, Oh, I can hear something. It's the fish. It's right there behind you. And then I think that's what precipitates the fish swimming around them. I think that's what it is. But then, boom, done. It's over. There's no quick, let's see if we can read clues into this. Let's try to figure out what it wants. Let's see if someone's riding it right now. (laughs) Let's see, you know, anything. Or let's try to get away. There's none of that. Yeah. And there's no attempt at rescue. There's no real sense of peril. It doesn't chase them, for instance. I mean, that would be to change the nature of the fish. But, yeah... 
I'll tell you what I do like about the fish. Okay. It Bill and Ted's itself. In my notes! It's hey, in my notes! It's in his notes, it's in his notes. He jumps back in time to make sure its younger self gets free. That is clearly the young fish going... Oh, crap. I'm dead. I'm just plain deadsville. The next thing I see is just the top side of a frying pan. You know, <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> resting next to some chips. But wait, what if when I'm older, I come back to this point and I rescue myself? He sees his future fish self show up and you can tell those two are high fiving. He's like, that was nice of me. Yeah. And there's also a mention of the Blinovich principle. Yes, I made a note of that as well. The Blinovich collision they're talking about in this one. I can never remember what the Blinovich effect is. What was that? It is something to do exactly with you can't cross your own time stream. Right, okay. So the note I have after that is completely unrelated. Okay. It's about Caroline Ford's delivery. Oh. And my note runs like this. Oh, my room. Oh, it's all wrecked. Oh, these are the shells I collected. Oh, no. Oh, the cloak. Oh, I wish grandfather hadn't done this. Can she not prevent herself from saying oh before every single sentence? I think that's in the script. Really? I bet you it is, yes. I know exactly the scene you mean. I think aside from that scene, I think she does a spiffing job. In fact, I think she does kind of a spiffing job in that scene as well. But Well, she is mostly spiffing, but I've made notes throughout. of like, Oh, the door to my room. Oh, ribbons and everything. <laughs> I mean, you can't write that many, oh, surely. Is she like this in the 60s? Not that I remember, no. So what's going on? I mean, what has she been doing since then? I mean, that's an excellent question. Is she acting in a lot of stuff? Hang on, I'm going to look her up on IMDb. I think she's worth a look. By the way, at one point I've got a note saying Doc fobs Susan off with crisps, which is very insensitive. Oh, I don't remember this is that. the first proper Christmas they've had since Mr. Potato died. <laughs> I don't remember that. The last oh, thing she was in was Five-ish Doctor's reboot. Whoa, she was in The Day of the Triffids. Cool. She's mostly in Doctor Who stuff, it looks like. Yeah. Including oh, sure some she... sort of off-brand fake ones. I expect at some point she did raise a family. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else she's done. Like, after Doctor Who and the last episode of Doctor Who that she was in, not counting she returns later on in 83. The last one was in 64. So she was in there from 63 to 64. Oh, wow. And then the next credit on IMDb is 1993. Goodness. Yeah. Oh, sorry. She shows up in 1983 for one episode, a special episode of Doctor Who, The Five Doctors. Yeah. But yeah, so then she basically retired from acting. So in 93, she returns for another Doctor Who thing. And it's basically all just Doctor Who, Doctor Who. It's like just a I handful mean, of stuff. IMDb is a partial representation of an actor's career, though. You can do radio stuff. You can do theatre. That's a very good point, yeah. So I'm now looking at her filmography. And yes, there's a couple of mid-70s. Oh, uncredited woman. Oh, let's not count that. Um television really? oh one episode of whatever happened to the likely lads oh and, and videos oh which I wait think hang on sorry i take it back yeah you're right but that's one thing no, yeah there's not she, a lot yeah she really hasn't been in anything wow yeah you're right there's yeah the odd single episode here and there not a lot oh it says she's like performed fun. many voiceovers and voice dubs but that could be referring to exactly what we're reviewing now yeah, you know what? That is exactly what it is, isn't it? That's certainly part of that. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're fine. Yeah, she did something else. So so maybe we shouldn't be expecting... I, I mean, I, I think she's a perfectly fine actress, but maybe we shouldn't expect the same range, maybe is not the right word, but offering 
as we would from someone who is a nine to five, five days a week actor. Yeah, she's still growing back into her role. She's still loosening. She's limbering up. And she's good. I don't mean to criticize. I mean, the whole overweening tone of my review so far has been harsh and critical. Well, same here. She is, on the whole, a positive, definitely. Yeah, I agree. It's just one of those things that once you start hearing it, and in an audiobook, there's nothing else you can do, you can't unhear it. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to call out something else that's negative. I, I really thought that she was good. But there was one other scene. It's a Susan scene. I thought it was very, very poorly paced. And I think that is another sign that criticism of Caroline Ford in this case may perhaps best be placed or sort of directed at the director or the writer. Yes. Uh, And the scene in question is her telepathic call with the doctor. Okay. Which, yeah, I thought it was very poorly paced. I think there's a reason why phone calls or, in this case, telepathic conversations normally are not relayed in real time or even slower than real time. And in this case, I think it was, in fact, slower than you would have this conversation in actual fact. I think it probably isn't slower. There is a long silence. There are many. There are multiple long silences. But there is one in particular where I think we are supposed to infer that the Doctor is finally coming to terms with the fact that Alex really isn't telepathic. He hasn't got any special Time Lord abilities about him. Yeah, and let's put a pin in that as well. even while he's riding this bucking bronco of a blitzer fish, he's having to take a moment to go, oh, 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 fine, Susan, yes, you're right. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the next thing. There was a film Abby and I watched recently, Two Days, One Night, starring Marion Cotillard. And in that, and this is leading somewhere, she has to get half of her little startup business on her side in a vote not to vote her out of a job. And she is making numerous phone calls to each of these people across the weekend. Mm-hmm. And you never hear the person on the other end of the line. Usually, you get both sides. You get a split screen or you get jump cuts between the two people. And we could be doing that orally yeah. here. But we don't. And I think it's about the same sort of speed. And it was really strange in this film. And it was really strange here. And I don't like it. I see that I've added that film to my watch list. I haven't seen it yet. It's all right. Yeah? Yeah, it's, it's not going to change your life, but okay. it's good. Okay. So we had slightly different impressions of that conversation then. Yeah, I think that there does have to be difference in the pauses between her lines, or it's just going to seem really fake. Like the doctor's going, one, two, three, four. And then she <laughs> says the next thing, one, two, three, four. Oh, yes, and now what, Doctor? One, two, three, four. What excellent advice? One, two, three, four. Yes, I will tell him. It would just sound awful. I agree, but nothing else was happening during those pauses. I mean, you don't even really get any background noise. It's just dead air. Mm. There might have been the hum of the TARDIS at most, but you could have had a conversation going on between the others at the same time. What's he saying? What's going on? You know, blah, 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 blah. Something, whatever, some sort of murmur, anything. Yes. Otherwise, you're right, you're right. This is, I think, possibly why the scene in Two Days, One Night stood out to you, because it doesn't necessarily happen particularly often. What, that we only hear one side of a conversation? Well, that it's relayed in real time. When it's done, it's done perhaps artistically, and it's done as a statement to really radically change the pacing of a movie, for example. Yeah, and it's also done within a limited running time, whether that's 
the entirety of a film or the space between adverts. Yes, also. <laughs> but in an audiobook, you don't have the visual impression of Susan changing her stance and, and looking around the room and maybe looking at Alex Campbell <laughs> at the scroll again. Yeah. You know, yeah, th- yeah. There's, and there's none of that. You don't know how she's reacting during this conversation, save based on what you hear her saying. And for that reason, I think you need to do something else with that dead air. Yeah. And you need to imagine her expression is changing. But for that, you would need some more radical changes in tone. I mean, these are all good lessons for our audio book. No dead air. No dead air. Yeah, exactly. No one-handed conversations. I mean, all of these audiobooks, including including this one, and spoiler alert, I'm not going to be giving this one a particularly high rating, but even this is terribly humbling because they know their stuff. They know what they're doing. Even when they're doing something poorly, it's surrounded by really good work and a lot of talent, and it also stands out next to the rest of their oeuvre, which is incredibly impressive. Yeah, and they have access to a full choir. Yeah, also this was a pin that I dropped earlier because I really want to talk to you about the music as well. But in general, just to round off that thought, it's that I can imagine some people in podcast land going like, yeah, but these dudes are ripping this one audiobook to shreds, but they wrote an audiobook that we listened to and it wasn't great. Like, they're not pros. Yeah, well, A, fuck you, okay, because it was awesome. And <laughs> yeah, B, listen again, and I'm sure you're, it's better than you remember. And B, I get it. I get it. We aren't professional audiobook writers or producers. These guys are, and they do a fantastic job. And even in this audiobook, which is going to get a really low score from me, they achieve stuff that I maybe wouldn't have thought of myself or would be incapable of achieving in a production studio, you know? Yeah. Anyway, it's just to to preempt the emails that I'm going to drop in. (laughs) Yeah. You wanted to talk about the music then? Yes. I mean, really just a quick note, but I'm curious to hear what you thought of the music because you did mention that you enjoyed the music as it was added to the Leonardo anecdotes. My very first note... So this is before having listened to the behind-the-scenes interviews. My very first note was, I'm not a fan of the music. Oh, okay. And my, my impression of it was really that it was it was a bit mal placé. Like, there's this choir that also, again, it changes the pacing of it. It was sometimes mixed in a little poorly, I felt. And it didn't seem particularly Doctor Who-y. In the beginning, I genuinely thought this was just royalty-free, sort of Hallmark-style Christmas tunes that they had overlaid on top of the action. But then in the post credit sequence, we find out that this was composed and recorded for this particular audiobook. Yeah, we hear the sound designers say, yeah, I spent about a month and a half doing it. Yeah. So I hope I'm not sick of Christmas tunes by the time Christmas falls around. <laughs> yeah, so holy smokes, they composed a whole choir piece for this audiobook. Yeah. Which is hugely impressive. And well done, by the way, because it's a beautiful piece. But it really feels squandered here. I don't Do think... you know why it's doubly squandered? Because it overlays or introduces a scene where they're in the January sales. Yes, You're exactly. Christmas music for the January sales! Which makes no sense. I didn't really understand that. In the beginning, I was wondering, so wait, so do they go to the January sales to get stuff cheaper so that they can then travel back in time and have a cheaper Christmas? Is that what's happening? Yes, that's exactly what's happening. Right, okay. And it's ingenious, but makes zero sense when you have brought a choir in and composed an original Christmas oratorio. 
Yes, exactly. And then the next time that we hear it, I think, is when they're exchanging their gifts. And I mean, the music is beautiful, but it's kind of miscast in that bit because the scenes where we get to hear this music, the scenes where we encounter this choir, they don't have quite the narrative gravitas or don't pack enough of an emotional wallop to really merit an original score. Yeah. What you want, don't you, is a slightly forced sense of we are going to try to get through Christmas. That's what the doctor is trying to do. He's trying to push all the peril and the nagging worries to the back of his mind. And maybe Lucy, well, Lucy's just got misgivings throughout. So they should definitely not be playing it completely straight, which is what we get. Yeah, true. I'm with you. Hmm. Oh, the doctor breaks the fourth wall. Oh, when? At the very, very end where he says, happy Christmas, doctor. And happy Christmas to everyone else, too, if anyone's listening. Wink. Oh, I missed that. That's nice. I like it. It's a Feast of Stephen moment. Yeah, and we've just had the Doctor categorically, epically breaking the fourth wall as Capaldi. And we went through there, the times where he's done it in the past. Baker addresses the camera or something, and Hartnell does that too. Yeah. And now we can do this exactly that. That's in Feast of Stephen, he literally just, or I think they all basically just go on. And happy Christmas to all. Yeah. Nice. And all episodes, Susan has been talking about how different he is from Hartnell. And here's a little bit of continuity. Yeah. That's maybe a segue into just a quick bullet point list. There's a tremendous amount of Classic Who references in this audiobook. Uh And they are just rattled off. Obviously, we have the long list of rooms of former companions, Ian and Babs and Vicky and Stephen and Dodo. I was going to say, they get the companions' names wrong. They say Barbara instead of Babs. They say Dodo instead of Dildo. (laughs) I mean, that's basic. (laughs) Yeah, Vicky instead of Vicky No Pants. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So right. I didn't think about that. But so in addition to that, we have... The Doctor and Susan reminiscing about the Aztecs. Not really reminiscing, they just sort of name drop them. They're like, hey, do you remember the Aztecs? Oh, I certainly do, Doctor. Mm. Yeah, cool, right, I remember the Aztecs. The fluid link in the Dalek city, that's from the second ever serial, the Daleks. The cloak that Thal number one gave Susan on Scar, I can't remember his name. Also from the Daleks. The Fault Locator, which plays a small part in this one, which showed up in, I believe, The Edge of Discretion. Oh. Where Hartnell referred to it as the Fornicator. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Yeah, that's a classic flub from Hartnell. The Fornicator. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Plays a small role here and also, I think, delivers the best joke. Oh, the faulty fault locator. Yeah, it's developed a fault. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought there was a nice reference to Susan not recognizing the time-space visualizer. She's like, oh, what what on earth is that? It's like, oh, don't worry about it. And the time-space visualizer, it appeared in Doctor Who after her run. Oh, oh, that's clever. So she doesn't know about it. Well done, Mark Platt. Now you're just showing off. Can you guess which serial it showed up in? It's Doctor Who watches the Beatles. They do watch the Beatles on it. Uh, what's the serial called? I wonder if it's been brought up on Who Back When before. Don't you dare say The Chase. It's The Chase. No! <laughs> <laughs> what isn't The Chase? <laughs> I looked the it up this like time. A cancer. Eventually, <laughs> it will just be the one classic Who serial and we'll forget about all the others. It's like some <laughs> sort of memory leech. 
<laughs> I double checked it this time because I know that on a couple of occasions I've said that something pertained to the chase when in actual fact it came from the Daleks' master plan. This genuinely came from the chase. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is cool. And that also, I think, ties into the fact that people who have watched Classic Who will derive more enjoyment out of this than I possibly can. And I'm thinking primarily of JD, Mr. Series 4 gets a 5.0 all the way yeah. through. Yeah. I mean, you've seen Classic Who. Did you catch these as they were flying by? Yes, absolutely. I haven't looked at the trivia for this, by the way. I'm assuming that there's plenty more that I missed. These are just the ones that I wrote down. Yeah, well, some minor pluses there. Yeah, I think so. Overall, by the way, over the course of this conversation, it may not have seemed as such, but my score has risen a little bit. I think it's because we got our venting about Alex Jake McGann off our chest, <laughs> and we really needed to relieve ourselves of that burden because I listened to this a few days ago, and Podcastland, I have been peppering Leon with requests pleading with him that we review this now because it was just gnawing away at me. <laughs> I had to divest myself of it. Uh, and now now that we have, we can be a little more charitable. Yeah, we have exorcised this demon. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to uh, getting back to, <laughs> to Exorcist 2 in uh, the double feature a couple of audiobooks from now. So I've got a couple more notes. Okay, yeah, let's hear them. The three actors in this episode... <laughs> They all convey enthusiasm. I don't think that's unfair. <laughs> Not at all. They all convey enthusiasm really well, but there are some unfortunate juxtapositions. Sheridan Smith is finally getting on board with the Doctor's continual teasing of surprises, and she says, oh, this is going to be so much fun. And <laughs> you can't help but smile at her enthusiasm, and that line is followed within a second by, right, that's the third bus we haven't got on. And then later on, Susan's enthusiasm is similarly infectious. Oh, look, he's here. Grandfather's finally here. Come on. And they go into the TARDIS and McGann is going, hello, hello, hello. And then Alex goes, hi. <laughs> and just kicks the legs out from under every scene. It's painful. But he's got to be in every scene. He's got to be represented. And then McGann is practically giggling and he's singing, the camels are coming, the camels are coming, the camels are coming. <laughs> and they're all putting so much joy into this. <laughs> and we can't relish any of it. Ah, oh, it's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> don't let it, don't let it. Dude, dude, bullet point me, bullet point me. I'm pretty much out of it, actually. Oh, well, should we rate this? Shall we? Let's. <laughs> And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 Ratings. Do you want to start us off? Sure. I'm going to start us off with a final bullet point that I just found. Alex has never once seen a dead animal. At multiple points in this episode, he says, That flayed a shrew. It's not moving. <laughs> One scene actually ends with him saying that. <laughs> Like Mark Platt has been like, if you're really clever, you'll figure out that he means it's dead. What's <laughs> doing, man? <laughs> there are many things to like about this episode. Parts of it aren't bad at all, but it only stirs the blood occasionally. The feeling that it would have been better as a three-hander is inescapable. Alex, sure, he's perhaps useful for deflecting Susan's protective instincts away from smothering the Doctor. 
and getting Lucy out of the picture for a bit for next time. But why? I'd still rather have had Lucy and Susan take the wheel more. I can see a little more, despite all of this, of what JD meant when he gave this series a 5.0 for audio, which we might call a deuterocanonical medium. This is enormously ambitious on the part of Big Finish. You grab the first dangling thread Doctor Who ever left and you swing from it like Tarzan into a whole fresh jungle of adventure. You stand up tall and proud alongside the show itself and you take true ownership of these iconic beloved characters, not just bringing back aliens for a second hack at the Doctor after decades of indifference, but you extend his family tree and it's all very laudable. But we have a mute adversary acting on instinct and about five locations within the TARDIS, crudely differentiated, plus a bus stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we've got to go on. The holding ring, I like the sound effects, the production value, the sound design in general. Exemplary, very good. But it has to be below average. Mm -hmm. How far below average? I can't really say with any confidence. I don't want to be too harsh on Jake McGann. He deserves it. (laughs) But perhaps he was also put in an... Impossible situation. Yes. A very difficult position. And I'm no actor. I don't want to pretend that were I to be standing opposite Carol Ann Ford and Paul McGann. I mean, he's your dad, but still, you want to impress the guy. And Sheridan Smith. And you've got a whole company of people willing you to do well ah i might fold under the pressure i know in fact that i would fold under the pressure i buckle under any kind of pressure so yes you've been laying some of the blame at the feet of mark platt leon and perhaps the director is implicated as well so this isn't just an anti jake mcgann rant much as it may have sounded like one podcast land i assure you (laughs) that was you mishearing oh it's a one point something i know that much 1.4 oh okay All right. Before I get into it, how certain are we that they are actually acting opposite each other? Could it be that the reason there are these huge discrepancies between their performances is that they're actually going into the recording booth one at a time? Well, you mentioned that they play a lot of outtakes and they're joking around. Oh, that's true. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Take it back. (laughs) Sorry, Jake. I was trying to do you a solid. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Right. I said quite early on that this tries to be sort of a scary Christmas special, but I think my main problem with this, and I also want to clarify, this is not the two foremost members of the anti-Jake brigade rambling on for an hour and a half, but I think possibly one of the foremost issues I take with this is that it is never suspenseful, and that holiday cheer feels terribly forced to me, particularly around the dinner table. There are some nice ideas at play here, and if it's the thought that counts, then bravo everyone, because in principle I have nothing against the idea of Susan, Alex, and Doc having this sort of family reunion, and and you mentioned time is a factor here as well, although, to be perfectly honest with you, I never took that into account here. I wasn't (laughs) massively impressed by that. We've seen it before. Oh, we've seen it before now. Oh, they never do time. (laughs) Now that you've seen it before, oh, really, time again? No, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, we've seen this particular kind of 
loop before. For example, oh, in, Hyde. in, in yeah. Hyde's, for example, yeah. Which I think this predates. Oh, okay, sure. But Hyde did it better. Sorry. Yeah. Overall, the story's incredibly flat. It's very repetitive, as loops maybe tend to be. But still, this feels repetitive. And it is rounded off. We didn't... I mean, we did tackle the end, I guess. But it's rounded off on such a bum note, in my mind, that I find it rather difficult to forgive this audiobook for it. I will touch upon... I was going to say Jason again. Uh, i just written it down. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, I yeah. was going to touch upon Alex... And the fact that the Doctor wants to recruit him now when he is already with Lucy. And this, again, to me, seems like this is a Christmas curse rather than a Christmas miracle. I don't understand why he wants to supplement his menagerie of co-voyagers, of of companions, with this chap. Like, do it later on when Lucy decides to leave, or don't do it at all. Or we don't know that Lucy has made up her mind to leave the TARDIS and leave the Doctor. We don't know that Jason... Fuck, I said it again! That Alex... Alex, Hang on, I'm writing it down again. Alex... um, Bold. That Alex might entertain the notion of travelling with the Doctor. I don't understand. And also, how on earth is Susan to react to this? She was abandoned by the Doctor, which they touch upon in this audiobook very lightly. They touch upon it a couple of times. Yeah, sure. I mean, she brings it up. Yeah, you left me there. Yes, but I came back eventually, says the Doctor. Yeah. So why would she now condone the Doctor taking her son off on some adventure? Maybe he'll dump her son on some distant planet and she'll never get to see him either. Well, they don't go that far, but they do have a scene where Susan and Lucy are looking through Susan's wrecked room. And Susan says to Lucy, she doesn't want Alex to go, but she doesn't then say the reason you give, which is a much better reason. She says, the whole world needs Alex, which is impossible. (laughs) Yeah, I don't buy that. Sorry. As we're on the topic... Overall, I think acting was somewhat below par. We've already discussed this, so I'm not going to go into detail. But obviously, we have Jake McGann, Mr. Guy McNepotism, who just really sort of drags down the average acting talents in this quartet. But the truth is, I don't feel like anyone was really having a particularly good day, with the exception of Caroline Ford, who on occasion is wonderful, but then is again also dragged down by some of the writing. But frickin' Jake McGann, man, I'm really sorry. This guy has zero range, and usually if you say that about someone, then you mean that they have a very narrow range. But this chap has literally no range. He has focused all of his acting chops on precisely one single mode of delivery. And I had made, I mentioned before, there were a few things about him that I didn't write up. I have a whole section in which I compare him to the doll in that horror movie, The Boy. Have you seen that? Anyway, it's, it's <laughs> about a wooden I doll. Picture it, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, my point is his acting is wooden. Sorry, this is getting longer than I expected. I'll, I'll keep it snappy. I'm really sorry, Big Finish, but this one did not really give me any of the feels that Christmas specials normally do. And I, I appreciate that even writing deliberate kitsch is very difficult, perhaps even more challenging challenging than writing a straight-up, no-nonsense episode, but that doesn't change the fact that I'd rather have had almost any other episode in this one stead. And unfortunately, for that reason, I have given it a 1.2. Okay, that seems fair. Yeah, I had originally given this a 0.8. I We'd... wouldn't disagree with that either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might. There are points where McGann, McGann's the hell out of the fish, and... yeah. There are some such brief emotional moments that are just starting to touch your heart before, I don't know, something mediocre intervenes. (laughs) 
well, maybe the next one's going to be interesting. Or more interesting. Oh, has to be. For one thing, it's the Doctor with a whole new cast of people. That's true. For a one-off. And in this run, and I'm assuming that we're only doing this season and then we're done with the Eighth Doctor Adventures, then we'll maybe venture elsewhere. Yes, I would like to point out at this point, sorry, Michael, this isn't a <laughs> seventh Doctor adventure. But after this one, we <laughs> have only three more original run Eighth Doctor adventures to go. And then we will start branching out. Yeah. Maybe we could start with the seventh Doctor one and then do a sixth and a fifth and a fourth and the third and then so on and so forth. Yep. Yeah, why not? So just you wait, buddy. But I think that pretty much sums up this, right? We have no listener minis, FYI. Kill surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Even Chris Sorella apparently couldn't make it through this one. (laughs) So, well, I mean, that says it all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, we do want to hear your thoughts on the final three, though. Yeah, building up to a 5.0 crescendo, according to unverified sources. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, that's about it for this week. What's next? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) What is next? Well, the next new Who that we'll be recording later this week is The Girl Who Died. Oh, nasty spoilers. What have we got coming up in Classic? Oh, excellent question. Next classic is going to be The Leisure Hive. First of mm-hmm. season 17 or 18 or whatever. It's a season opener. Yep. Fully 1980s. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first of the last season of Tom Baker. Wow. You are on the downward slope in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the next audio? That'll be Prisoner of the Sun. Exciting. Very exciting. Mm. Who's that prisoner going to be? And for bonus, you know, as and when. Yeah. Who Stay knows? tuned. Might be bloopers. Hey, might be our audiobook. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's get on that, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> We've written plenty of part two or four. And I'm sure after that, really, the rest will write itself. Yeah, it's turning into part two of six, I feel. But we need to have a conversation about that offline. Yeah, yeah, we really do. (laughs) So that's it. But until next time, you can follow us online. As if you hadn't heard enough of us already. (laughs) Leon, where can you be found these days? Oh, thank you for asking. You can still find me at Ponken, P-O-N-K-E-N. I have put the rebranding on ice for now as I decide whether or not I actually want to. (laughs) Oh, really? After all that? (laughs) After hundreds of teasers? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Literally hours we spent talking about this. (laughs) Edited down from a greater number of hours. (laughs) That's slightly hyperbolic, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) How about yourself? You can follow me in the same old place. Put a message in my Tweety bottle at Drew back when. Excellent branding. Yeah, right first time. <laughs> <laughs> Brag. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, Podcast Land. You've been a lovely audience. <laughs> <laughs> Until the next time, if Leon will permit me to say... Hey, dude, you do you. Rock on <laughs> and be excellent to each other. <sighs> Bye bye. (laughs) Ciao, ciao. (laughs) (laughs) Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends. I've got no friends. No problemo. Tell some strangers. Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash who back when. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at who back when. All in one word. 
Check us out on Instagram for behind-the-scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit, listen to us on Stitcher, and head on over to our website, whobackwhen.com, where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives, and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, ciao. Who back when?